Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast. As always, me, Gary McGowan, and my co-hosts slash hostess, Patrick Farrell and Dr. Nicola Flanagan. Welcome. Thanks for the introduction, Gary. Am I the hostess or is that? You're uh, the hostess, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so what are we talking about today, Gary? We're talking about depression in women specifically because we've been running a female-specific series in case anyone hasn't noticed by now. And we've covered a lot of different topics, um, a lot of physical topics, if you will. And now what we want to talk about is depression, which is obviously a mental health condition that affects both sexes and seems to be more prevalent in women for many different reasons that we will cover today. Um, But it's definitely something that's very relevant to the women's series because there are sex differences. There are some different contributors to depression risk. And women also have a number of unique circumstances that they have to deal with, such as menstrual cycle, menopause, pregnancy, the post-pregnancy period, all of which can modify uh, depression risk. So uh, that's the topic for today. 100%. And uh, I suppose we'll kick it off and ask, like, what is depression? Do either of you want to have a, a crack at that? Depression is, is, is sadness. That's what it is, you know, but in all seriousness, it's more than sadness. Okay. And this is something that we touched on in the last podcast where a, a psychiatric diagnosis is effectively the, it's the extreme of a normal emotional state to some degree, because we all have periods of low mood. We all feel sad every now and then, if you didn't have that normal spectrum of human emotion, it would be very difficult to function in the world. And there are psychiatric states characterized by that a very narrow spectrum of emotion and then those that are on the extreme. And in this case, um, depression is basically the extreme state of sadness, but it's more than that as well. It's not just characterized by low mood. It's also characterized by things like anhedonia, where you don't actually get, you know, pleasure from normal everyday activities kind of a, a lack of vigor for a lot of people and a feeling of, of malaise where you're just not really interested in doing anything. You feel like you've just got this kind of inertia where you just don't want to do anything. You might not want to get out of bed. And that's not the case for everyone. And there are different, different depressive syndrome, syndromes, but that's something that a lot of people experience. They'll experience fatigue. They might feel sleepy. They might um, have you know, those physical symptoms like changes in appetite. Some people lose weight, some people gain weight, and they might have uh, difficulty sleeping, particularly early morning waking. So there are many different symptoms that could be associated with depression. And there's also a very significant crossover, um, especially in women between depression and anxiety as well, um, because women have a, a greater proclivity towards depression and anxiety. And that anxious state might be one of the contributors to the risk of depression. Um, And obviously, if someone's more on the anxious side of the spectrum, they're going to have more anxiety-like symptoms, like, for example, um, perceiving uh, threats, you know, elevations in heart rate and the other physical symptoms of anxiety, worrying, nervousness, etc. But overall, depression itself can be thought of as an extreme state of low mood that is also inclusive of things like anhedonia and the physical symptoms that we mentioned and one of the things that's really important is that this is typically a more prolonged state 
So, and it's also disproportionate to general life circumstances. So what might happen is, for example, let's say you experience a breakup or you experience grief or something along those lines, um, maybe extreme poverty or something like that that's just affected you um, out of nowhere, you might have a proportionate emotional um, and psychological and physical response uh, by feeling depressed for a couple of weeks as you get over that period of time, but that's not necessarily major depressive disorder, which is the diagnosis. Um, but if you've got more prolonged depression, where, for example, you're working in, I don't know, a hotel in Killarney, you know, you, your circumstances are relatively good, you know, you've got shelter, you've got food, your relationships are pretty good, etc. And your emotional state is totally disproportionate, that will be more consistent with depression. So typically, if you're going to receive a diagnosis of depression, you, your doctor would carry out, you know, an extensive history and an examination as to what your life circumstances are, etc., and then make the diagnosis rather than just saying, okay, this person is really sad today, or they've been really sad this week, and that's depression. Because I think some people get that that impression. Um, and it's sometimes kind of reflected in, in media and social media that, you know, people just get these diagnoses of depression just thrown at them from everywhere. And in some cases that does happen where maybe it's overdiagnosed, certainly in some cases. Um, but it's not just as simple as going to your doctor saying, look, I'm feeling really low. I'm feeling really poor. And you just get the diagnosis. You typically want a bit more detail on the timeline, the triggers, life circumstances, the broader range of symptoms experienced. And that's basically what characterizes depression. Yeah, it's basically, it's not just sadness because people often, <laughs> it's not. oh, you're just sad, just do things that make you happy. And that's not exactly uh, a helpful way to think about it because mm -hmm. that's not the full characteristics of the actual issue at hand. You know, I often think of it, and again, I'm stupid, so, you know, bear with me. Um, I often think of it, it's like you've lost that kind of like spark for life. You know, like the, the, it's not joy. Joy is the wrong word, but it's like, oh, I want to go do this thing. I want, I'm excited to do this thing. Like, for example, using your example there, you know, the person working in Clarny or whatever, they might have a, a life that's, you know, perfectly fine. You know, there's nothing extraordinary about it, but, you yeah. know, other people in the same position are happy, you know, and they might be going, oh, yeah, we have a party on on the weekend. And they're just kind of like, Meh, like yeah that's a, that's fine you know there's no enjoyment of that you know there's they might enjoy it while they're there but there's no excitement towards it same with like maybe they book a holiday or they're going on holiday with their friends and there's no excitement towards it they don't might even want to go because they have that anhedonia that like low whatever you want to call it drive to do things out outside of the you know oh i have to go to work etc and um, so it's kind of that spark for life now obviously look as you mentioned it is different in different people people are going to exhibit it differently none of us are psychiatrists psychologists whatever the perfect term is for the person that actually diagnoses this stuff you know and um, but the thing about it is as well in the actual like scientific literature it's very hard to categorize depression right because you can't really induce depression in humans, right? First of all, it would be unethical. Um, but second of all, like it, it, just because you can induce sadness in someone, like if say, I don't know, I killed your fucking dad or something, right? It's going to be like, all right, you're, you're sad now as a result of that. Maybe, you know, a bit of vengeance in there as well. But, you know, you're sad as a result of that. But that's not really depression, right? So we can't really study it in humans. But then we can't really study it in animal models either because we're just trying to look at a set of 
characteristics. You'd be like, all right, I can induce, you know, anhedonia in this animal model, but it's not necessarily the same way that it happens in a human, just because I can knock out this, this gene, or I can introduce this stimulus or this drug or whatever, and it causes the same kind of characteristics. It doesn't mean that it's the same disease state. You know, it's the same with like maths, for example, the way I always describe it is like, you know, you could add three plus three to get six, but you could also add four plus two, right? So just because you end up in the same position, the same characteristics, the same like phenotype, it doesn't mean it's the same pathway that it occurred in humans. And this is important to understand because, you know, people will come up all the time with, oh, this is the cure for depression, or this is what you should do. And this is why we kind of want to go through stuff on this uh, podcast episode in terms of like, what can you do nutrition wise, training wise, all that kind of stuff to actually, you know, quote unquote, help with this stuff. Because you will see so much uh, fuckery, we'll say, out there in terms of people preying on someone. Like you can imagine you're you know, sad, you want to be happy, like no one really wants to be depressed, I presume at least. Um, and then you're Googling stuff online and you find all this shit like, oh, take these supplements or do this exercise regime or do whatever. And it's not really ethical at all. However, with, that, with all that in mind, we can't really conclusively say this is exactly what depression is. We might have characteristics, we might have diagnostic criteria, but we don't have that, oh, this is the exact pathway through which you, know, you can cause depression or you can create depression. You know, It does seem to be a case of you know, genetics playing a, playing a role. There are lifestyle factors, which obviously look, that's the kind of stuff that we talk about, the, the lifestyle, training, nutrition, et cetera. Um, but it's incredibly multifactorial. You know, some of the stuff, even though they're lifestyle factors, they're not really modifiable lifestyle factors. You know, like you could have a genetic propensity towards depression, but because your lifestyle is fantastic, I don't know, you live in a, a palace somewhere and you have lots of friends or whatever. It's like, okay, cool, right? But you could also have a situation where you have a genetic propensity towards depression and your lifestyle factors are exacerbating that because like, again, like you said earlier on, you could be in whatever position with regards to your, your, your life situation. You know, you could be in a, a position where, you know, your fucking house burnt down, your family were killed, whatever. Like there's so many things that could put you in a state of sadness that then makes it harder longer term to actually get out of that sadness, get out of that depressive state. You know, again, like you mentioned, especially like early life uh, stuff, like if you had, I don't know, been abused or something as a child, you're going to be more on that spectrum towards depressive symptoms because there are actual like changes to your brain state and everything your actual brain architecture, the structure of your brain, and um, that can occur, which we'll talk about later on in, in, in some regard. Um, do you mind anything else, either of you, to say about like the kind of characteristics of depression or the what is depression story? Just no? one thing to say is that like one of the really messy things about um, depression for a lot of people is that it can be a bit of a it's a it can be a vicious cycle okay so there can be propagating factors that occur as a result of the depressive state that make depression worse and increase the probability of permanence so for example let's say that you begin to get depressed right in university okay you're in your later stages of university you've been doing well in your degree so far and you start to experience depression what can happen then is let's say your grades start to fall you feel worse about yourself because you're getting poor grades and um, you're no longer going to the gym anymore because you don't have energy. You're not eating well because you're just 
you're not bothered you can't be bothered to cook you're just you feel too crap you don't see the point in it you're feeling really nihilistic you start to you know back away from friends and isolate yourself so your relationships are compromised your university education is compromised your job prospects after are probably compromised your your body composition your general health your daily energy levels basically everything that would contribute to a happier state let's say a more fulfilled state and greater life prospects have all been compromised by the depressive state and if not addressed that's going to make the depression worse firstly short term and secondly it's going to make it far more difficult to recover because there are less positive things in your life that you can begin to draw your attention toward and that's one of the the, the reasons that it is so important that depression is addressed and that if you are if you think that this is affecting you that it's something that you discuss with people because it's if you leave it 5 10 15 20 years down the line suddenly all the protective factors that you had and all of the things that would have you know um, improved the chance of you actually getting back to a good baseline have all you know gone out the window so that's one of the really messy things about depression it makes it very difficult um, but if you can get on it early and start to make some of those changes and that's generally a positive thing. Yeah, but it is hard though because it can yeah. be hard to actually even notice yes. that you are depressed, and that it, therein lies the issue. Now, look, we're not a again psychologist or whatever, so you know, maybe there's a psychology podcast out there that talk about how to notice the symptoms of depression earlier. But it is a very important point because obviously, the earlier you get in and you intervene on this stuff, the easier it is to actually deal with this stuff, right? Um, but anyway, let's kind of move on and actually talk about more specifically women and depression right but first we need to address the fact that inflammation does seem to play a role in depression right and there's a number of reasons why that might be the case and we'll touch on them touch on some of them at least uh, in a moment right but depressed individuals do tend to have slightly higher and potentially uh, very high uh, inflammatory markers right inflammatory cytokines so if you do like a blood draw or something you might see some of these inflammatory markers, they're outside of the range, right? If you have a depressed individual, you'd be like, whoa, your inflammation is incredibly high. But the reason, well, I should say like this, the reason people go in, like dive into this in terms of the scientific literature, uh, in terms of like studying this stuff is because a lot of these cytokines, a lot of these inflammatory markers can actually access the brain, right? And as a result of that, because again, if you look at neuroscience, classically, it's very brain focused, obviously it's neuroscience. So if they see high levels of in inflammatory markers in the blood, for example, like the brain is, you know, uh, somewhat privileged in terms of everything that is in the body doesn't get into the brain, right? But these inflammatory cytokines can, right? At least some of them, right? And that can influence uh, some of the neurotransmitters, some of the other you know, things that happen in the brain that are related to depression. So it's important to understand that inflammation does seem to play some sort of a role here, right? However, it's not always the case. Like I said earlier on, like you can have depression uh, and it could be that three plus three type, right? Or it could be that four plus two type. There's obviously uh, a multifactorial thing going on here where, okay, some people have higher levels of inflammation and that seems to be, you know, potentially playing a causative role uh, in their, their depression, but other individuals have depression, or at least they've been uh, you know, diagnosed with depression, and they don't have higher levels of inflammation. So even though we're generally going to be talking about, you know, inflammation and different things, 
we're going to be talking in generalities that might not be specific to the individual in front of you or yourself right and so that is important to understand it's not like there's just one this is exactly what's going on this is exactly what happens across the entire spectrum of depression if we knew that we would have incredible treatment uh like protocols for this stuff right but we don't um but just keep that in your mind information does seem to be playing a role here to some regard and we'll talk about that further but why do women seem to be more predisposed to depression right and this is something that we actually have to address and obviously that's the the point of this whole podcast here today what's the story with women because if you look at the the literature you will see that women get diagnosed with depression at roughly a two to one ratio depending on the country that you're in uh, some countries it's as high as like three to one some countries are obviously lower and but it seems to be a case at least in you know the western world that there's this two to one ratio so for every one guy that is you know, diagnosed with depression, two women are diagnosed with depression. Okay. So that's important. You, you look at that and you go, okay, whoa, women seem to be getting depression at twice the rate that men seem to be getting depression. Okay. So you would be going, right, this is, this is something we really need to deal with. If we're talking about women's health and depression is a very, you know, important topic to talk about mental health in general is a very important topic to talk about because obviously you know there's shades within shades of depression but one of the outcomes that can obviously occur as a result of depression is suicide and you know that is a, a major killer in the western world and in lots of parts of the world and um, so it, it needs to be treated with care it needs to be identified early and it needs to be treated early right and um, however just because twice as many women are diagnosed with, uh, with depression than men, that doesn't mean that that's actually reflective of the actual situation in, in terms of the, the sex differences, right? And it could be reflective of like sociocultural, you know, it could be a sociocultural phenomena. For example, like men don't really go to the doctor. Men don't really reach out for help, you know? And this is why you have such things as that, like Movember and stuff to kind of encourage men to be like, right, you go out and actually talk about your feelings go out and talk if you're feeling low you're feeling you have something going on you actually have to go out and talk to someone about this now it doesn't need to be a professional it could at least even just be your mates you know but men don't really reach out for help whereas women are much better at actually reaching out for help when they need it you know again you can see this like classically you see this in like uh whatever like uh tv shows and stuff where a guy won't ask for directions even though he's completely lost you know just be like oh i'll I'll, I'll figure it out myself you know and that's kind of the way men treat depression or any mental health issues it's like oh i'll figure it out myself i'm not i'm not going to be weak and you know reach out for help you know that's the way men kind of see it right so that is one thing maybe that lowers the ratio as a result right um but there may actually be no difference overall even with that factored in because more men commit suicide than women, right? On average, across the world, in a two-to-one ratio. So for every one woman that commits suicide, two men commit suicide, right? So it's almost like the flip, you know? It's like, okay, so two women get diagnosed with depression for every one man that gets diagnosed with depression, whereas for every one woman that commits suicide, two men commit suicide, right? So there is a little bit of a... A thing here where you're going okay so it's clearly a higher phenomenon where in men i should say then it's being you know recorded but it's very hard to really identify whether 
it is 50-50 across the entire population, right? In terms of, is it just depression? It's like kind of like heart attacks, you know? Sometimes, well, often they'll say that the first symptom of, you know, heart disease is a fatal heart attack. You know, it's like, that's what you come to, you come to the doctor with, you're, you've got a fatal heart attack. That was the first time you even realized that you had any kind of heart disease, you know, because it's, it's progressive over time. This could be the first time that we realize that these men have some form of depression it's the suicide, it's the fatal suicide or the attempted suicide, you know? And um, so that is something to keep in mind. And um, because even in some parts of the world, like the ratio for suicides for men to women is four to one, you know? So for every one woman that commits suicide, four men commit suicide, which is, you know, recklessly high. And that's not like in some random, like, you know, crap part of the world where you're like, look, their, their life is terrible over there. You can see why it's happening. Like this is in places like America you know like supposedly like first world countries that have the the best of the best like you know we have all the best services etc you know so it is important to understand but having said all that let's even assume that it is 50 50 in the population depression is 50 50 across men and women there are still key identifiable points during the female life cycle that we can identify and go okay you are at more risk of depression there there does seem to be some sort of hormonal um you know part to this so we have to factor that in because we know like depression in both sexes goes up after puberty or during puberty right so we know in both sexes that there is a role for hormones right but during the female's life cycle like uh, first of all just the the, the, the smaller portion in terms of like the menstrual cycle, right? We know that there's portions across that where depression is potentially higher. But then of course, across the larger life cycle, uh, we know that there's points where depression, depressive risk is higher. For example, you know, postpartum, right? Or um, during menopause. There are points where we can identify that there is an increased risk of depression and it seems to be hormonally related. So that is important to to really understand that okay it might even be 50 50 you know in terms of depression between men and women it might not actually be this huge sex difference as it's often made out to be in terms of like a a bigger risk for women in terms of having depression you know but there is clearly uh, an identifiable thing across the life cycle of a woman that if we know that we can actually you know intervene and at least identify that ahead of time right um but do either of you guys have anything to uh to say on that in terms of the predisposition of women to depression um yeah like you were saying i suppose the the prevalence when we match it up with life cycle and life changes there does it does seem like there is a hormonal hormonal um element to it but i definitely would argue that um like psychosocial issues definitely play a huge role I'd say hormonal might kind of more predispose you kind of to these depressive episodes or to depression um but definitely um psychosocial issues have you know an overwhelming influence I think on women as well particularly when you look at you know kind of puberty and perimenopause all those kind of big kind of life changes Mm. and there's a lot that goes into that because again it's one of those chicken or egg type of things and we'll touch on this in, in a second and we'll, we'll try to like unpack this um but like those psychosocial changes like they could be whenever someone says psycho psych, psychosocial people often think it's like oh society you know putting their boot down on you and trying to push you down or whatever but it's also within group and without group 
or if that makes sense like it's like it's women doing it to women it's women doing it to themselves it's men doing it to women it's society doing it to women like it's every part of the society it's not just like one identifiable oh this is the thing it's also the way that individual interacts with society we're very in this in the current world we're very uh hesitant to kind of like a you know, quote-unquote victim blame but there are better and worse ways to interact with society for example we'll talk about it in a second but you know social media is a thing that has been identified in younger women like this kind of uh uh, teen preteen women it seems to be a risk factor for more depression right and it could be because they're comparing themselves to others it could be because women have you know more of that hyper social connectiveness whereas guys are like oh i'll just you know go off and fucking do my own thing they don't mind being that quote-unquote lone wolf um whereas women like to be in that hyper connected you know whatever you want to call it state um and if you're in this thing where you're comparing yourself to every single person on earth and you're also able to get bullied 24 7 all day every day um like that's seems to be worse for women than for guys you know it's not fucking great for guys either but it seems to be uh, an increased risk for depression in in those kind of uh, female cohorts especially in that kind of preteen teen area and that again as i said it could be chicken or egg thing because yeah that is uh well first of all it's a, a sexually dimorphic characteristic you know it's first of all it's like all right women seem to want this why is that the case so obviously it's sexually dimorphic um i don't say they want the, to get depression from this i mean they seem to want <laughs> to be hyper social right um but also it seems to be occurring at times where there is hormonal transition you know, so it's like, what exactly is going on here? And that's why we have to really unpack this. And look, again, this is not going to be a, a treaty on like, oh, every single thing about the, the causes of depression. But it is, un, it is important to understand that the psychosocial side of things factors into this to a huge degree, you know? Yeah, definitely. I think even when, when you take kids at puberty, even seeing kind of the, the difference between boys and girls, so the rates of depression before puberty will be you know quite similar mm -hmm. uh, and then when kids hit hit puberty like if a girl hits um puberty you know kind of develops breasts kind of wider hips before her friends it's something that they um you know might get kind of anxiety about they might kind of feel really self-conscious about suddenly they're kind of the outcast from the group um and there's higher rates of kind of anxiety depression in that age for those girls that might be seen as kind of the, the outcasts that have hit puberty beforehand but you see the opposite in males you know if, if a guy gets really tall and the the voice starts to deepen they're like yeah class you know um and they're suddenly you know more the alpha male of the class but you still have the opposite um in women so that's kind of one, one of the one of the again biology you know hormones play a role but there is that kind of again that kind of psychosocial element where it's not like the media it's just um and it's something that that predates media you know going back all, all the way there's something that's been going on for a long time yeah it's, it's weird as well because there's like an evolutionary exp explanation for that in terms of like women traditionally have been required to raise the children right so if you know that you're going to have to raise children in, in the future or you're like at least it's like that's like whatever you want to say genetically programmed into being like raise children that's something that you know is the female task in the society etc right it, it's a weird one because you basically then start thinking of yourself and start thinking of your actions in the broader context of society like this is why generally women are more uh uh 
civically minded they're more conscientious of like actually having a functioning society whereas guys are like yeah fuck it let's burn the place down let's wreck the place whatever right um but you realize like as a woman you go okay well i actually need these other people right i actually need these other people to help me so you basically don't want to be different you don't want to be that outcast because if you're going right if i get pregnant and i have a child i need these other women to help me raise the child you know and like i need the, the group right so women are less likely evolutionary speaking to be that oh uh, i'm different you know i i'm different like this is what you always see it's like you know the the classic trope of like uh like you see in like memes and stuff it's like oh i'm not like other girls and it's like they're exactly like <laughs> other girls you know <laughs> um but it's like yeah, women don't like they, they you want to be different you want to be like unique but you also don't want to be so different from society that you're not going to be accepted into society because again there's this evolutionary drive to be accepted in society because you need to change you need to raise the children now obviously look society's society these days is a lot different than that but there is still this kind of ingrained uh, thought process either within like it maybe it's genetically programmed i don't know but within the actual society structures themselves like it's always been like oh this is what women should be thinking so it's kind of pushed upon you whether it's genetic like it's like that kind of a nature or nurture argument all over you know it's like well how much of this is a genetic thing and how much of this is like society has already got its its hooks in and you're only a, a nine-year-old or something you're like don't be different at, at all you know gary do you have anything to say on that no, I don't think I have too much to add. The only thing I would I would just circle back on, even though it's again it's not entirely clear in all populations regarding prevalence, is that like men men do commit suicide more, but women attempt it more. Mm, so that that's... that is something that's important to note when trying to explain prevalence, because like, and then this obviously is, some of this comes down to um, just differences in in personality and traits of violence, but like a man is more likely to blow his head off with a shotgun where, whereas a woman might take a, you know, overdose of paracetamol or something along those lines. And then as a result, you know, mightn't die, but still attempted suicide. So I think sometimes it can look like um, there's massive differences in suicidality when you look at um, differences in committed suicide. But as, as far as I'm aware, I think in most populations, women actually do end up attempting more, but they just don't uh, follow through. Yeah, there is also, uh, like, back in the day, before any of us were born, they used to have those gas cookers, you know, and women used to kill themselves all the time with those. They'd, like, put their heads in and basically gas themselves to death because it was basically you'd just fall asleep. And you, you, there'd be no pain involved. And when that was the case, like, women or female suicidality was very high. As yeah. soon as they switched the type of gas that was put in those, so you basically couldn't do that anymore like female suicidality went like it hit fucking rock bottom than it's it's ever been so it's a really weird one where it's like maybe women think about suicide maybe women do have depression way more and they think about suicide but they're not as stupid i suppose stupid is the right word to actually go through with it and go oh yeah i'm actually gonna fucking kill myself whereas like if you just have to open the the oven and basically fall asleep and you're gone it's a very easy method of doing it you know but i don't know look that's just a that's, what sylvia, that's what sylvia plath did i think yeah. exactly yeah <laughs> but you can't do that anymore so if anyone's thinking about that unfortunately yeah. <laughs> it won't work you'll just cook <laughs> um but yeah, anyway yeah. look there is more to this story right because stress does seem to play a role in all of this right and 
the thing about stress is we often think of it in terms of society. We're like, oh, everyone knows what stress is. What we're actually talking about when we talk about stress is distress, right? It's the, the you know, that's the actual, we'll call it the, the categorization because stress can mean many different things. You can have a stressful event, but perceive it really positively. And while it would be a stressor for someone else, you think that as, oh yeah, this is actually great. It's helping me in my career. Like for example, you know, you might like public speaking and while someone else might see that as a really stressful, oh no, I have to public speak. You might get away, you might go away from that really energized. You know, you might be like, this is actually great. I really enjoyed that. Even though it was the same like stimulus, right? So there is a component of perception within stress. But what we're often talking about when we talk about stress is this distress, right? So something that is distressing that causes a negative after the stimulus, right? So when I say stress throughout this, that's kind of what we're talking about, right? But stress does induce changes in these inflammatory markers, you know, inflammatory cytokines, right? And as a result of that, it can play a role in depression, right? Now, the thing about it is there is sex differences in terms of the actual stress response between men and women, right? Um, and there's also, like, in terms of, first of all, the same stressor is given to a man and a woman, there seems to be a different stress response between both of those, Right. But also in terms of the actual stressors themselves, right? You could have a stressor, say, for example, a physical stressor, um, a man and a woman might actually have a different stress response to that overall. But you could also have something like a psychological stressor. And again, men and women will have a different stress response to that. And this is most easily identified or most easily uh, explained in terms of the immune response, right? Because the immune response is actually kind of part of this whole stress system, if you will, right? Like the stress plays a role in immunity, but also the immune response, like what is it doing? It's responding to a stressor. It's responding to a stimulus that's been introduced into the body, right? And men are often categorized as having this kind of fight or flight, uh, you know, immune response and also this fight or flight uh, stress response. Whereas women are often talked about in terms of having this like tend or befriend response, right? Um, and the reason for that, the reason that there is a sex difference in terms of that is multifactorial. Some of it is to do with, you know, if you have a child on board, like you literally are pregnant, um, you can't be having these huge fluctuations in like, say, cortisol, for example, you can't be having these huge fluctuations in other inflammatory cytokines because it's going to potentially affect the child. So you basically get this kind of blunted effect, but also well, there's other things we might talk, talk about them in a second, but basically I just want to identify that there does seem to be sex differences in terms of stress response. And there's also sex differences in terms of like the actual effect a single type of stress has on an individual. Right. And um, now the reason this is important is because stress itself can actually induce changes in terms of actual, you know, uh, hormone receptors in the body, right? Now, I don't mean just like stress, like, oh, I got a little bit stressed in work, all the receptors in my body for these different hormones are changed. I don't mean that. Generally, what we're talking about is if we put ourselves into this higher inflammatory condition chronically, right, we might start seeing changes in the type of receptor, estrogen receptor in this case, we'll just talk about that one that is being expressed, right? So we can actually induce those changes with stress, right? However, 
we could also be genetically predisposed or we could genetically have uh, a higher prevalence of a certain subtype of estrogen receptor, right? Because there are different subtypes of estrogen receptor. Um, and I'm just focusing on the estrogen receptor, but there are differences. There are also different subtypes of the androgen receptor, although that's less well studied. And this is also why like, you know, people often talk about like, oh, I have really high testosterone or I have low testosterone and I can't build muscle or whatever. I can build muscle really easily. Like it's not always just about the level of testosterone. It's also about the like actual way you express testosterone receptors, right? That actually dictates the function. For example, Gary has really high testosterone, but he's really skinny. Um, <laughs> you know, so like it, it doesn't always matter about the actual testosterone level or the actual hormone level. Like in this case, estrogen, like the actual receptor could be different, right? And inflammation seems to be driving a more depressive estrogen receptor subtype, right? So you have the estrogen receptor and when estrogen binds to it, you get these effects. Um, but a certain subtype of that estrogen receptor, when estrogen binds to it, it seems to not give the effects that you would think, right? And well, I'll, I'll go a little bit deeper in terms of that because first of all, when we're looking at, and we talked about this, I think it was in the first episode uh, of this series in, in terms of um, like female hormones, right? We've got estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone, right? There are different ones, obviously, but all those are generally the main hormones that people are talking about, right? So if we're saying there's some sort of hormonal link here, there's some sort of hormonal link to depression and, you know, wife, women seem to be getting it more. We have to look at the hormones. We're going, well, there's a hormonal link. Let's actually look at the hormones, right? Well, estrogen seems to be protective against depression and inflammation, Okay, so maybe we start, we'll just rule that out. We'll go, okay, estrogen, it seems to be protective. Progesterone also seems to be anti-inflammatory and potentially protective against depression. Okay, so we're like, okay, they're the two main ones that we're seeing fluctuations in across the cycle. And if we're saying there's a potential link across the cycle with depression, what's the story here? Let me look at testosterone. Testosterone seems to reduce inflammation and, you know, over immune system uh, activation, right? It seems to be anti-inflammatory to some degree as well. It seems to be antidepressive as well. So I've just mentioned that the top three hormones here, and I've said that they're basically all somewhat anti-inflammatory um, and they are also all antidepressive. So what's the story there, right? Well, the thing about it is we have fluctuations. Well, women have fluctuations of those hormones across their cycle, right? And estrogen at low levels seems to be associated with an inflammatory state, right? And as I said, inflammation seems to be playing a role in the potential, like a, a causal role in depression, at least in some individuals. And it seems to be at least correlated with depression in other individuals. So when estrogen levels are low, we seem to be put more into or predisposed more towards this inflammatory state. And we'll talk about why there is an inflammatory state in, in a second, but we have to remember now, okay, if estrogen is low, we might be predisposed to experiencing more inflammation, right? Estrogen, it, it's, it's dependent on the subtype of the estrogen receptor and the ratio of that subtype to the other subtypes. And as I said, you could be genetically predisposed to a certain unfavorable subtype, right? So your estrogen levels might not even be low, and um, but you've got an unfavorable subtype for depression so there is more to the story however if we just keep it in mind that when estrogen levels are low we seem to be getting less of a protection 
right? There seems to be more or less inflammation across the cycle, depending on where those hormones are at, right? And this is also the case at different life stages, right? So again, such examples like, you know, postpartum or even after taking the pill um, or, you know, menopause, when there are these fluctuations in these hormones, again, notably estrogen being lower, we have a situation where we're going, okay, we potentially have a higher risk of depression here, right? Does that all make sense? Do you, either of you have anything to, to add there? No, it, it, it's, it's interesting with, like, like we're saying, like across the, even just the menstrual cycle, like we do know about kind of PMS and hormonal fluctuations and kind of mood fluctuations as well. Um, but what's interesting is when you compare um, with women self-reporting like PMS symptoms from country to country, it like varies widely, you know, like just say, I, I can't remember the, the the rates off the top of my head, but I think between like to say like Iran and here, maybe like 50% of women report PMS symptoms where it might be kind of like 10, 20% here. There's a huge kind of variation and it's all kind of self-reporting. Um, and I think a lot of that, you know, while it does come down to hormones, I think sometimes we're like very quick, I think, to write off women as kind of, you know, hormonal and kind of neurotic as well. Um, I think the whole narrative, I think even just kind of being a woman kind of growing up was just like, oh, like, you know, are you on your period or, you know, you're just being kind of, you know, hormonal, like, you know, so we put a lot of that um, down to our hormones. But however, I think some of it, some of it comes down to hormones some of it is self-perception as well, that if you know your period's coming up or if you're on your period and um, if you know where you are, um, you know, in your cycle. And that's why you see kind of a lot of like conflicting studies where, um, you know, just say you might see in some higher rates of depression, women taking oral contraceptive pill. Um, on the other side, you see lower rates um, of depression um, of women on the oral contraceptive pill. So it just, um, it just varies so widely. Yeah, and again, this is why it's so hard to really identify what's going on because like we're humans. We're not just like a collection of hormones and signaling peptides and all that kind of stuff. It's like we actually, like while we are all of that, we are more than that as well. You can't just look at you know, all the stuff in isolation, this like biomedical reductionism where it's like, oh, look, it's just look at this uh, estrogen receptor subtype and this uh, level of inflammation and that's going to predispose you to this, blah, blah, blah. Like people will often say this, uh, they'll have this like... Uh, almost Newtonian view of humanity, you know, where it's like, oh, well, like I can just measure these hormones and I can measure these signals in the brain and cool, we really understand all that stuff. You know, whenever anyone talks about free will, for example, they really go down this like Newtonian physics, like, oh, this thing happened. And then I can say this next thing happened. And it's all just like, if I just know the starting conditions and I know where these things are going, I can tell exactly what's going on. And that's not really how the human mind or the human body works you know you can go down and go oh there's like a quantum uh, physics element to this but even just at the actual like lived experience side of things like it's not it, it's not this newtonian like oh here you go this thing happened and then this next thing happened like it's going to be different for example again you said like you could take the pill and you could have a reduction in your depressive symptoms and this could be because now you've actually got enough uh, estrogen to actually get uh you know, that antidepressive effect from estrogen, whereas you could be on the pill and now we're actually, you know, it's not enough estrogen for you or it's not the, the, the type that is best for your receptors because a lot of this research has only really been done in like E2, estradiol. 
And we don't really know what the effect of all these other types of estrogen are actually doing. We don't know all of that stuff because it hasn't been as studied. And going back to what you said in terms of viewing this like contextually throughout history, like it is one of those things where obviously our sociocultural historical view of this uh, influences our current view of this. For example, like you said, like people were often, you know, just, or I should say women were often just going like, oh yeah, like you're just on your period, who cares? Like the term like hysterical, like it comes from the same term, like, like as hysterectomy, like it's like female, you know? And um, so it's like, oh, she's just being hysterical. You know, it's like that, that kind of stuff does actually stymie our ability to understand this stuff and actually help women with depression. But it's also like, twofold in terms of you might just think oh like you know my depressive symptoms that i get every single month that's just normal that's just what women have to deal with because of my cycle when in reality you actually have depression you just like you get more of a a cyclical depression and if that prevents you from actually reaching out to get help because you're like oh like that's just normal that's just what women have to deal with like that's not beneficial uh, at all you know so there is again, when we say these like sociocultural stuff, we can't just go, oh, this is what the outside society is doing to us. You actually have to like think about how you interact with that society as well, which is the harder part because it's very easy to just look out and go, oh, this is because this person or this group of people back in the past or whatever did this. When in reality, it's like, okay, well, how are you interacting with this right now? Because that's the thing you can change, which is unfortunate because like ideally we would just be able to change the negative things in society with a, a click of the fingers, you know? Uh, but anyway, look, we'll, we'll, we'll move on from that. Um, and what I want to say on this, and it seems to be a little bit counterintuitive, uh, at least because especially related to what we were just saying, where women were always saying, oh, hysterical, you've got this like menstrual cycle to deal with, blah, blah, blah. But women are actually better able to handle stress than men in terms of their overall stress response, right? Um, but it's only when estrogen is lower that they don't seem to have that uh, ability to handle stress uh, as well. So it seems to be estrogen is really protective. It seems to be estrogen is really beneficial and in terms of the stress response, in terms of actually dealing with like the inflammation from stress and all that kind of stuff. But when that protection is gone, when that estrogen level dips a little bit, which it does during the normal menstrual cycle, we don't really seem to have as much of a benefit, right? And this is often seen in terms of the immune system. This is very, very uh, clear in terms of how how much better women are at dealing with different stressors than men. Now, it's not for all stressors, and we'll touch on that in a second. Um, but in terms of the immune response, this is a very clear picture. Like you'll often see, like people, like women will literally be sexist in this, uh, and they'll be like, "Oh, man flu. Oh, these guys, they just can't deal with with the flu. You know, oh, they're they're just sitting in bed, and because they have the flu." When in reality, this is actually a a manifestation of the fact that women are better able to deal with stress. They're better able. They have like you basically have a better immune system than guys, right? And so you're giving out about like this man flu when that's actually because men aren't as well equipped to deal with the stress than women are, or that than women are yeah um so you'll see women literally just get on with they're just like oh it's cool no factor i'm sick like you're sick right now nick <laughs> you know it's like no factor it's come it'll come for us all <laughs> uh, you know but it's like it's no factor right whereas men will be like oh i'm sitting in bed i'm so sick and this is again like yeah gary always does this gary gets sick literally like 12 times a year um, <laughs> um but um what was i was saying yeah like you'll see the differences and i often uh, describe it in terms of the immune system like women basically have this 
always active immune system. It's like this standing army. You've got this, I'm going to pay this army to stay hyper vigilant and keep track of everything and really stay on top of things. Whereas guys are like, oh fuck, like I'm not paying that army. They can just, you know, see you later. Uh, if I get something wrong with me, I'll start mobilizing everything. But that's chaotic. And as a result of that, like, well, yeah, we get the same end outcome in terms of we destroyed a pathogen or whatever it is. Like the, the male uh, immune system, it's like, all right, we have to mobilize everything. We have to throw everything at this right now. We have to you know, get everything going on a very short notice, um, which obviously isn't as good. But the converse of that is women seem to get more inflammatory conditions, more autoimmune conditions because they have this standing army, right? Because you have this like hypervigilant standing army that you're always keeping like toned, you're always keeping it going, uh, which is protective in a lot of other cases that you get the, get the flu, you get sick or whatever, and you're like, no factor because you've paid the standing army, they're well-trained, they're, they're good to go. Whereas guys are like, I'm not paying for that. And as a result, they're laid up in bed going, I'm so sick, you know? But the converse is you get more autoimmune conditions. And so it's a, it's a catch 22, but if you again go back into our evolutionary past, this would have been a benefit for women when we're dealing with a lot more issues in terms of like pathogens in the food supply, pathogens in the actual environment, like guys would have just fucking died off. You know, we would have got the the flu or whatever died off. See you later. Whereas all the women would have survived or not all of them, but more of them would have survived because they actually have this better ability to deal with, you know, pathogens, stress, whatever you know um do either of you have anything to to say on that or add to that <laughs> i don't know are we talking about depression or are we going to talk about the man flu <laughs> so you're just triggered because you get the man flu <laughs> yeah yeah you know it's the high testosterone testosterone is immunosuppressive um but anyway right um finally to to add to this like there is differences in terms of the actual estrogen again as i said like we mainly only really studied that e2 uh subtype of estrogen and um, and all the other estrogens haven't been as well studied right there really isn't also much study in terms of androgens and depression and we know that testosterone seems to play a role a protective role against depression right and that hasn't really been as well studied in women because you know it's often seen as like oh like we don't need to think about you know female male hormones like you know it's often thought of testosterone as a male hormone but you have to remember that there is actually more testosterone in your body male or women than there is estrogen in your body male or women that made no sense male or female (laughs) uh, there's more testosterone in terms of the actual magnitude like if you were to get the amount of like particles or whatever um, and that's often not realized if i say like oh yeah as a woman you have more testosterone than you have estrogen you generally don't think that you know you'd be like oh no estrogen is the female hormone right well testosterone seems to be the the human or the life hormone whereas estrogen is actually more powerful in terms of you actually need less to get uh, a high effect right so it's more potent right um but either way there's very little research in terms of the the male hormones these androgens uh, in female depression um, and this is obviously an avenue for further investigation. And this is especially important because certain interventions, certain medical interventions, like taking the pill, for example, they actually do reduce uh, male hormones. Notably, DHEA is the, the, the generally seen as the quote unquote, you know, main uh, female male hormone uh, and taking the pill can actually reduce DHEA levels. And this is often why you'll see people say stuff like, a, like a, it's illegal in Ireland, but you can supplement with like DHEA 
um, like you can just buy it online, you know, and um, people will often do that in context of like, say they're a powerlifter, for example, and they're going on the pill for whatever reason, whether it's to regulate their cycle, whether it's to, um, I don't know, they have PMS or PMDD symptoms, whatever. They're like, I'm going on the pill, maybe just for, you know, protection against having children or whatever. And uh, they're like, I'm going on the pill. And then they'll start noticing that their performance in the gym might be decreasing. And that might be related to the type of pill that they're on, but it also might be related to the level of DHEA in their body. So oftentimes you'll see people supplement with DHEA and they'll see their strength improve then again, right? Because again, you're taking basically a, a an androgen, right? Um, but either way, that's a, a general overview of stuff that can occur in, in depression in terms of why this is occurring. Um, maybe, I don't know if either of you want to just touch on like that postpartum or post-pill depression, because it kind of makes sense in terms of this, this context. Maybe even want to touch on a, a menopause or anything, either of you? Let me, yeah. go ahead. No, no, go on it. Um, yeah, so like we were saying, kind of, you know, puberty is kind of one, one of those big kind of life changes. Then we have kind of pregnancy, postpartum as well. So you'll hear kind of like baby blues, um, you know, quite commonly with women. And that, that can come down to a lot of things. One, like we were saying, kind of the, the hormonal disruptions. You also have a huge life change at play there. There's a lot of sleep di disruptions, um, which we know as well can really kind of play into um, mood disorders and, and depression. Um, and then we have the the kind of postmenopausal depression, or really kind of we see kind of the highest rates in kind of the perimenopause, that kind of transition um, to menopause see kind of a higher prevalence of, of depression there as well um, and that's where we'll see the the most kind of hormonal changes is that perimenopausal stage rather than postmenopause we actually see um in postmenopause we see the rates of depression kind of start to even out between men and women um but it's it's more again the the not just the the hormonal fluctuations going into menopause but also again um, more kind of psychosocial issues so like a lot of women will kind of see menopause as something um, you know like, like a negative life change which we know now you know absolutely isn't it's just a different life stage um, for women um, but it can be a huge um, uh, source of anxiety and again sleep disruption etc hot, hot flashes and those kind of symptoms all kind of feed into each other yeah, hundred percent. And the thing about this is as well, like thinking about it longer term in terms of across your life cycle or across the life stages, like your body basically wants this kind of homeostatic, uh, like, or, or basically just wants homeostasis, right? It wants to say something that I can go, right. I know exactly where I am. I can regulate things to this point. And that's actually a little bit easier in terms of post-menopause. And that often is why you see this like reduced rate of, uh, depression as a result of that, because there is or there are lower fluctuations right um but it is also reflective of you know if you have been predisposed to depression you know earlier in life it's, it's probably going to be exposed then it's probably less likely to be exposed in later life so you've probably come up with strategies you've probably come up with you know treatment protocols whether it's with just yourself or with in combination with a doctor or whatever like so that is one of the reasons you see less depression later in life but as you said there is this whole actual life transition in this postmenopausal uh, uh, or even perimenopausal place where it's like this is a major life event you know this is a signaling a, a thing in your life that's occurring you know um so 
there's so much that goes into this and obviously we focus a lot on the the hormone side of things here today but as you've been frequently bringing back up there is more to this there is more especially in terms of the the psychosocial stuff and obviously again it's a chicken or egg thing it's like oh well is this driven like hormonally is this you know related to hormone levels like it is clearly because it seems to really occur at certain points of the the life cycle where hormones are playing some sort of a role but that doesn't mean that it's the the whole story it's multifactorial and again perception plays a huge huge role in all of this stuff and again if you perceive yourself to be in a bad position or whatever like that's that's half the battle here now again that's another chicken or egg thing because your perception is inter like it interacts with your depressive outlook <laughs> like if you have depression uh as a result of you know whatever genetic thing um because there are other things that we could have touched on in terms of you know the way you metabolize like the serotonin pathway and stuff you could have more like chironin uh, i can never say that word and um, like stuff like that that can occur and that's under active investigation um but regardless we can see a thing where there seems to be some sort of hormonal component there seems to be some sort of like psychosocial component and we have to factor all of this stuff in um and the one thing that i do want to just really reiterate is like stress seems to play a role in this right and there's multiple sources of stress in any society and anything but for women in particular it seems to be that psychological stress seems to be the worst uh one for causing disruptions in uh the system you know women basically <clears throat> uh get psychological stress the same way guys get regular stress right the way the body deals with it so that is, and that's not negative that's a negative way of dealing with it again we don't we want to have that standing army we want to we want to deal with it nicely like women do right <laughs> um whereas if you're dealing with psychological stress like men deal with stress that's obviously not beneficial and again we have these socio-cultural factors at play again some of these are evolutionary some of these are just like the way society has always been structured at least the last you know four thousand five thousand years um, and this all plays a role in terms of how you actually deal with the stress and the thing about it is we basically want to reduce our exposure to chronic stress that seems to be the worst type of stress in terms of affecting our depressive risk um, because again this could be related to it causes changes in the actual like hpa system it could be causing changes in the estrogen subtype it could be causing changes in a whole host of different areas but it, either way, that kind of chronic stress does seem to play a role in increasing your risk towards depression. And if we've got chronic stress in the, uh, you know, the, the, the form of chronic psychological stress, then we're in for a really, really bad time. And this is why it's really important, especially for like to have discussions like this uh, for, say, for example, like, you know, preteen and teen girls, like they're being exposed to this. 24 seven social media it's a psychological stressor and you know that's not beneficial we're at one of these life stages where there is hormonal transition and now we're going right we're going to expose you to excessive amounts of chronic psychological stress that's probably not beneficial right and while obviously stress can come in many many forms it is one of the the causal factors in this this whole pathway in terms of that seems to increase inflammation it seems to increase your susceptibility to depression overall so it needs to be dealt with you know um but anyway is there anything else either of you guys want to say on 
depression before we just move on to like okay well how do what we do kind of factor in or how does what we do factor into all this in terms of like what can the individual do to potentially help themselves potentially guard against depression like we mentioned some of the stuff at the the start of the episode like gary did earlier on um but what's the story there yeah let me just um just to kind of summarize some of the important pathophysiology some of which or most of which you've touched on um that gives us information as to what we can actually do so the first one that's very relevant when it when it comes to what we will talk about with therapy is the monoamine neurotransmission so serotonin noradrenaline dopamine etc these are the circuits in the brain that govern things like reward for example and how we respond to you know stressor stressors or praise things they're basically the the signals that function in, in the brain and these can be uh, dysregulated in depression. It's not so clear that there's any one direction, but we do know that they're really important therapeutic targets. So that's something to to pin away. And there's and, multiple, uh, just on that, there's multiple ones that are important. I know everyone always focuses yeah. on serotonin, for example, because you know we give SSRIs to people that are depressed. But for example, like I have ADHD, people with ADHD are predisposed to <clears throat> depression. And that's because there is a, like there's the differences in the DAT transporter, well, the dopamine transporter. Um, so you can have a situation where you have low dopamine, right? So it could actually be the cause of your the depression is this chronically low dopamine level, which could be a result of say social media exposure, this hyper like scrolling through, getting all these dopamine hits. And as a result, having this dysregulated reward pathway and um, so there is more than just the serotonin because i know everyone always fixates on uh, on serotonin yeah i mean selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors are, are, are the most commonly prescribed drug and obviously as the name suggests they're selective for serotonin um, or serotonergic neurotransmission but you do also have snris you have uh, monoamine oxidase, oxidase inhibitors etc there's many other types of drugs and they all interact with uh different uh, pathways whether they be noradrenergic dopaminergic etc to variable extents and i think that one of the reasons i'm bringing this back up is because trying to pinpoint a specific pathophysiological mechanism of depression or a root cause of depression is silly and very short-sighted and it's just not practical the reality is that because depression is something that you're studying in a, a conscious being you have to consider the complexity of the system. And those monoamines are important. The HPA axis, the stress response, the endocrine response, all of which Patty has touched on, neurotrophic factors such as brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF, the different um, areas of the brain that are plastic that can change over time, their relative size, the density of the tracts, et cetera. And then the immune system and its dysregulation, inflammation, as Patty has touched on, all of these things are tied together that, and, and it's trying to disentangle them just doesn't really make sense in humans because what, you're, what you have to realize is that any life circumstance is effective, effectively being appraised through some sort of operating system, which you might think of as your mindset, your cognition, your view of the world. So I appraise that circumstance and then all this stuff going on under might affect that operating system and trying to you know, pinpoint one thing is very, very difficult because every uh, pathophysiological area is going to affect everything else. And therefore thinking of depression 
um, or any cognitive state as something that emerges from that as like a very messy soup um, is probably a, a better way of thinking about it. And that becomes really important now as we move to what exactly we should do. Because sometimes you might see, you know, hypotheses about supplements or diets that maybe affect one of these areas, but that doesn't mean that they impact depression. You know, something might affect serotonin, doesn't mean it impacts depression. Something might affect cortisol, doesn't mean it impacts depression. And that's something that's really important when you're reading in this area. Yeah, and it is actually really important because again, you will first of all see a load of like whatever you're gonna call them, charlatans going like, oh yeah, here's a supplement that's gonna work on this single pathway or this this thing that's been identified in depression. And that's just not the way you should be thinking about this stuff. And this is not the way even like, you know, you should be thinking about SSRIs or anything. You know, you should be thinking of it going like, this is something to help me get back to a place where I can start getting everything back in order right it's it's a it's a crutch basically right and that's not a bad thing I know people always say like oh you're just using that as a crutch like the crutch has a benefit like if you've broken your leg you use a crutch because you've broken your leg and it's the same with SSRIs or whatever you use them as a crutch to get back to a place where you're like right I can actually get everything back in order and obviously you talk to your doctor about this but you know that might be something that you take a, a low dose of for the rest of your life just to, to keep you at that position but some people get off you know uh ssris and different uh whatever um because they're like right actually i'm back in a good position they have to monitor it obviously because you know maybe there's a predisposition here to be like right i'm predisposed to depressive symptoms or whatever so i have to keep an eye on it but you should be using it as a tool like for example again i'm going back to like i have adhd and people will often go on a certain drug for adhd whatever it is methylphenidate or you know whatever right they'll go on a certain drug for adhd and they'll expect that to just be life-changing they'll be like right that is the thing that's going to you know fix all my issues and for some individuals it can be like immediately life-changing it can be really beneficial straight out the gate but realistically what you need to do when you're taking a drug like that is you actually need to use it to get your life in order you need to use it to be like right i'm having uh, an issue with you know maybe it's procrastination maybe it's like focus maybe it's whatever you're like right i need to use it to overcome those issues so that i can get some sort of like a rewiring of the brain that i can actually get good habits in place that i can get really good structures in place so that these issues even when i'm off the drug they're still they're, they're lessened you know and that's obviously not the case for everyone like you might have to just be on the, the drugs for forever um but some individuals are like right actually i need to take less and less over time because i've really structured my life i've got everything in order i was just using this as a crutch to get everything in order you know and it's important to understand that this is basically what people do with caffeine you know and even like people treat their depression with caffeine and i don't mean like fully treat it but they'll basically try to treat their depression by consuming copious amounts of caffeine because you can imagine Relatable. yeah exactly um like because you can imagine like if you have like anhedonia or something you're like right i need something to like give me a kick up the arse and get something done oh a little bit of caffeine a bit of a stimulant cool let's go right you're like all right it actually interacts with like dopamine it actually interacts with serotonin it actually interacts with like the hormonal system as well here in terms of like you know aromatase inhibition it changes like sex hormone binding globulin levels so many different things you're like this is actually somewhat of a weak antidepressive right and that's why people take like 12 cups of coffee gary <coughs> uh per day just to get through the day you know um 
but either way, like people were, people are using different drugs to do this. People use nicotine, for example, people use alcohol and alcohol is a terrible one for this because it is actually a depressive itself, you know? Um, but people will do that to be like, all right, I need to like, you know, forget about all my worries or whatever. And then they take a depressive because it's somewhat mood elevating at the time, you know? Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a complicated field, right? But I want to just touch on, actually just glossed over it. I, I meant to touch on it earlier in terms of like female specific sources of information, because this is actually influence what we think of in terms of how we start organizing things. There does seem to be different things that affect uh, women slightly differently in terms of the amount of information that they get from this. And obviously, as Gary was saying, it's not just all inflammation, but it is a point that we need to like look at and pay attention to, right? Um, so we have some female-specific sources of information, psychological and social stress. They seem to be one that really women don't do as well with, right? That psychosocial stress you know, it affects women more than men, right? Now we can't really do much about that in terms of, like, I'm not going to go, all right, well, actually you need to change your friend group. You need to get off social media, blah, blah, blah. But that is something to pay attention to. If you are experiencing like psychological or social stress and you're like, I'm, I have depression from this, you need to start reevaluating why, why that is the case, what's occurring there, right? And um, effect infection and immune activating conditions, like women are more likely to experience depression in response to an immune challenge. Now, obviously, again, we can't do a huge amount in terms of like how this affects us. Like, I'm not going to go, all right, you have to like uh, not go out with your friends and wash your hands 20 times a day because you might, you might potentially get, get sick a little bit or, oh, I know you have an inflammatory condition. So, you know, you need to be hyper vigilant that you're might, maybe going to get depression as a result of this. So there's not a huge amount that what we do interacts with this about, apart from just like making you generally healthier, right? That's something to be aware of though. But then finally, there is like a, a source of, female specific information in terms of metabolic health and this seems like a weird one but women do have in general higher levels of body fat now in general this is a more beneficial distribution of body fat so it's not as worrying as like guys with higher body fat like women seem to not pack it in around their uh vital organs which is you know ideal uh that seems to be negative getting a lot of visceral fat and um, but it is a source of cytokines it is a source of information to some degree and um, but also and this is again going back to this like socio-cultural side of things like women seem to participate in exercise far less than guys right and that is a source of uh, a reduction in well, muscle mass for one but also in terms of your stress resilience like we know exercise increases stress resilience your ability to handle different stressors, your ability to handle inflammation. And if you are not participating in exercise, like you're not getting all those benefits. So that is something that we really need to pay attention to that metabolic, metabolic health component. We need to get body composition in a good place. And that obviously involves eating a good high quality diet. And then we also need to exercise, which kind of brings me on to what can we do about depression in women? So I don't know if either of you want to, uh, Take it away with this. Pretty, it's the start of it is, is pretty basic, as as you said, exercise. Okay, you don't need a specific therapeutic mechanism as to why exercise works. It probably impacts every single area that we've touched on, um, along with others. Okay, because your physical health is related very much so to your psychological health, and if you're exercising to improve that, that's probably a good thing but exercise also has acutely antidepressive effects. Okay. Even if you 
ask someone about their mood after a workout, they generally feel better and that then accumulates over time. So exercise is a relatively potent antidepressive, to be honest, um, and also reduces anxiety. Um, in some studies, you, you will see similar effects between anti, antidepressants and, and exercise in terms of their therapeutic effect. But that's, there's very much individual variation there because firstly, there's massive variation in how people respond to antidepressants. You know, it's, people will often say a third of people get a, a good response, a third of people get partial response to antidepressants, and a third of people get no response at all. Okay, and then when it comes to exercise, there might be you know variation there as well. So comparing the two is not entirely fair, um, particularly when baseline levels of exercise might vary. For example. In my state, what, what are you going to do? Tell me to exercise more? You know, what am I going to do? 20 hours a week? 30 hours a week? You know, yeah. <laughs> I went to my, my doctor. I'm like, yeah, I do, I do like 12, 15 hours of exercise a week. They're like, okay, you need to bump that up. That's rookie numbers. Let's do 30, see what happens. No, okay. You need to assess the person's baseline um, prior to making any sort of, of recommendation. Uh, so that goes for exercise, aerobic and resistance exercise. Just on that as well, like uh, SSRIs and a lot of their treatment modalities and exercise seem to be somewhat synergistic as well. So you seem to get a better response, you know, if you are exercising as well. So it shouldn't be an either or type thing. It's not like you go to your doctor and he's like, yeah, actually you should go on SSRIs. And you're like, you know what, actually, bro, I think I'm just going to start lifting weights. Like that's, <laughs> it's not an either or argument. You can be like, right, I'm actually going to start increasing the amount of exercise. Maybe you're exercising once, twice a week, or maybe not none at all. And you go, right, I'm going to start exercising three, four times a week and going to take these, whatever the doctor suggests. Mm -hmm. And then also one of the things you have to consider as well is it's, it's not just, not just general exercise, but like if you can find a, a sort of exercise that has complementary benefits, for example, it also offers you group participation. And that's something that might be really beneficial for you. So under like appreciating the specific features of your depressive state is just something that cannot be overstated because if you're someone who has socially isolated yourself, then, you know, partaking in a group activity might be an extra priority for you. Um, and maybe you're someone that already exercises, but your exercise to date has always been maybe body composition focused. And one of the features of your depression happens to be um, body image concerns and obsession with how you look, maybe somewhere on the eating disorder spectrum, even in that case, you might actually want to recommend someone exercise in a way that's maybe less body image focused that might be beneficial for them if they were to focus more on maybe function and what their body can do and getting fitter etc so while the broad recommendation of exercising is absolutely useful um, the specific recommendation would vary then depending on the person and the specific features of their depressive state 100 and is there a, a type of exercise that you would recommend over all the others no Aerobic and resistance exercise both have antidepressant effects. Okay. And again, my primary recommendation is to stick with what I just said regarding the features of your individual state. Ideally, if you do no exercise, you know, start by walking a little bit more and progress up. You know, it doesn't have to be an immediate vigorous exercise program. What you'll often find, especially in people with uh, depression that's associated with low energy levels and low exercise participation is they might, you know, spend most of their day just doing very little, like as in like not even getting a thousand, two thousand, three thousand steps. So that could be a very easy win for someone to just aim for five, six, seven thousand steps a day 
do that for a few weeks, see if you feel a bit better, and then maybe take the step of entering uh, the gym or doing home workouts or whatever. Um, well, walking is particularly good, especially if it gets you outside and you start seeing some like, you know, nature around you, greenery, maybe you get some sun on your skin, you get vitamin D levels increased because we know vitamin D, like low levels of vitamin D can be associated with depression. So, you know, huge benefits just from walking, because I know like our audience will listen to that and go, ah, walking is too easy, bro. I get fucking 50,000 steps a day, you know, um, but, you know, you have to think about the individual that's struggling to get those 1,000, 2,000 steps per day because they're lying in bed all day. They don't really want to move. Maybe they have a work from home job as well, which, you know, is not ideal for depression because, you know, you don't have to, uh, well, it could be for some individuals, maybe your source of depression is going to work. Um, but you, know, you have a work from home job and you're not seeing anyone all day. You just sit in your room all day. Like those kind of things, they do really negatively impact people. One of the other things that I just wanted to mention in terms of exercises, you really want to, reduce the barriers to exercise you know you really want to make it a, a habit wherever possible and because you're going to you know, most people that are depressed are going to have some form of anhedonia so actually getting out and doing the exercise is going to be one of the biggest barriers you might even want to exercise you know like you might be like yeah actually i can't wait to exercise i'm i'm a little bit excited for it but you just don't have the motivation to go, oh, I have to go put all my stuff together. I have to get ready. I have to travel to the gym or I have to do this. Like all that kind of stuff can be a significant barrier if you are dealing with depression. So you want to reduce that barrier whatever way possible. You want to have your clothes ready to go. You want to have like everything set up so that it's so easy for you to just go, all right, I'm going to the gym or I'm going for a run or whatever it is. So reduce those barriers to exercise and it will be easier to exercise and get the benefits from exercise. Yeah, and, and just one final thing there on, on the exercise side as well is considering not just the act, the act of exercise, but also the kind of the psychological aspect of the exercise. So for example, one of the things that a lot of people report when they start resistance training is that they love the idea that they can go in, do something and come back the next day and be better at it. So for example, they're able to see themselves progressing by adding weight on the bar. And suddenly, especially for someone with depression, it might be the first time in a long time that they've seen, oh, look at the action or look at the effects of my actions when I apply myself. This has improved. I feel better about it. Maybe I'll try that at work or maybe I'll try that in another area of my life. And that can have a nice feed forward effect. Again, not going to be the case for everyone, um, but it, it is just one of those areas where you can start to build a bit of momentum and once you build that forward momentum in one area of life, it can often start to carry over. So someone might see that, look, my bench press is, is increasing. You know, why don't I, why don't I start eating a bit better now to, to, to support that? Or maybe I'll go to bed a bit earlier tonight because I want to make sure I'm performing best in my bench press session. So it just gives you some sort of purpose and meaning and the, the, um, the observation of yourself making progress. And that can have, have huge uh, reward as well outside of you know the physiology of, of muscle contraction and myokines and blah 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 exactly and then on the nutrition front nicola is there anything we can do here yeah so just like you were saying about the the training just cycling back a little bit kind of that that's a big thing like you were saying about um kind of having um almost like performance goals so improving every time that you go into the gym like i'd find with 
a lot of a lot of women that I've trained what trained would have um you know kind of body image issues and would have you know issues with food and actually changing the perspective of going into the gym and just trying to like hammer a cardio or trying to hammer a training to make yourself smaller actually having these performance goals and not seeing something as training is something that you're trying to change yourself but trying to kind of get stronger feel stronger um again can just kind of improve their their body image a lot more than 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 anything anything else so yeah I think that that's an important point to make um but then yeah with with nutrition again is is, is a huge thing as well so like a lot of women have kind of IBS kind of gut symptoms we know IBS is more of like a functional gut disorder there's nothing um when if they were put a scope down into the stomach um into intestines there's nothing kind of structurally wrong there um and it's hypothesized that kind of mood can have a huge impact on that as well and um, which is why we see um like mood anxiety which is why we might see higher rates in in women we all know that that you know we kind of have a you know when we're stressed or anxious about something we kind of have this like gut feeling you know we get butterflies in our stomachs we do know there is some kind of you know connection there um and one trial that's always um brought up time time again like the smile trial um is where they compared kind of two um groups so they all had kind of uh, i think moderate to severe um depression and then in one group they took them and they followed a, a modern a modified mediterranean style diet and it was you know composed of kind of high fiber then the other um group then they focused on kind of social support they didn't touch the diet at all but they had you know kind of weekly um social support sessions and then by the end of it it was actually um the diet side the people who were following this mod- modified mediterranean diet there was something like 30% remission of um, depressive uh, symptoms, not only depressive symptoms, I think depression in general. So they used um, a depression scale to like quantify this. Um, again, it's, it's just one study, but it is like, it was quite a significant result. So it is interesting to see how just working on your diet and improving things from that perspective can have such an impact on even kind of perceived um, depressive symptoms. 100% and that's why we always hammer that kind of <clears throat> like can't even speak high quality uh food selection you know and that's obviously going to be different for everyone like there is some commonalities across that um but there is a better diet for you as an individual you know and that isn't this like you know really restrictive like oh you have to eat only you know the freshest fruit and vegetables blah 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 that people think it is like there are better and worse food selection or food choices that you can make and if you can find the diet that works for you you're going to get results across the spectrum yeah absolutely um but then beyond that in terms of food selection is there anything else that we can do diet wise that we potentially help uh with depression do you mean in terms of specific nutrients? Well, or? anything. If you're just like nutrition as a, a broad category, because I know everyone goes like, oh, well, you know, we have to get like specific supplements or you know, I have to do this with my diet or that with my diet. Like is there anything above and beyond, say, the normal things that we recommend, which is eat a calorie appropriate diet. You know, we want to eat a calorie appropriate diet because that's, you know, going to be beneficial across the board. If you're uh, excessively hungry or excessively full or whatever, that's not like, beneficial for a variety of things um 
So calorie appropriate, that's obviously going to help with managing your body composition then uh, as well, as we kind of speak as well. And then we want to pick uh, high quality foods to fill that calories or those calories. Um, but is there any like maybe macronutrient ratio that we'd be like, oh, that's better. Is there any particular nutrients within the diet that we'd be like, they're better ones? Any, any thoughts there? Yeah, I, I think for the majority of the people, it's trying to kind of identify the low hanging fruit, like the majority of people have, you know, um, terrible diets, you know, um, so it, it's, it's trying to not get too overly focused on things like, you know, should I be eating meat? Um, or should I be, you know, not eating red meat, you know, um, but it, it's trying to, it's trying to look at your diet and say, okay, well, is my diet composed of, do, do I have protein at each meal? Um, is it composed of kind of mostly kind of um, whole foods? Or do I have like, you know, an excess of kind of ultra processed foods in, in the diet. Um, you know, do I have protein? Am I eating regularly? Am I, you know, leaving like 10 hours in the day where, you know, I'm absolutely starving again, that can feed into kind of mood disorders, which can lead into, you know, kind of overeating in the evening, kind of binging. And again, like, just like a, you know, a a kind of a, a cycle there. Um, and then, so yeah, kind of protein, um, meal timings um composite like food composition so whether it's like trying to increase your kind of fiber intake as well um so i think identifying the low-hanging fruit is, is important and then you know on top of that maybe looking at things like am i getting enough um kind of omega-3s am i having enough kind of like oily fish a week um if not am i supplementing so you know like our omegas omega-3 will kind of decrease inflammation um, which we know can play into into um, uh, depression or d- depressive um, symptoms. Yeah, hundred um, percent. And the only ones that I would add on top of that is, like I mentioned earlier on, that like vitamin D three that can be beneficial. That does seem to play a role in depression, especially like that kind of seasonal depression, um, that kind of seasonal seasonal affective disorder. And um, so making sure your vitamin D levels are up to scratch. If you live in the British Isles, or as I call it, the Atlantic Archipelago, because you know, can't say that British Isles, this is an Irish, Irish business. Um, but uh, if you live in the northern part of Europe, you're probably not going to get enough vitamin D just from walking around in the sun. Um, maybe during the summer you can, but for the vast majority of the year, it's just not happening. So you're probably going to need to supplement with vitamin D, and most people don't, unfortunately. Um, so that can obviously play a role. So that is something to consider especially if you do seem to notice that like, oh, like most suicides, they occur during this, the spring, for example, right? And that's because you've basically got to a stage where your vitamin D levels are at their absolute lowest. Depressive symptoms are at their absolute highest. Like you've just gotten through winter and now we're like, right, what's the fucking point anymore, <laughs> you know? Um, so that is something to consider. Vitamin D, make sure you're getting up to scratch with that. And um, a lot of people will hypothesize about you know, specific micronutrients, especially they'll do all this like mechanistic hypothesizing going like, oh, we need like this B vitamin for the correct uh, synthesis of serotonin in the brain and like all this different stuff. And like, yeah, that stuff does like play a role, but you don't need to be focusing like hyper-focusing on specific nutrients, just eat a high quality diet. And if you're really worried about it, maybe, you know, a high quality multivitamin on top of that. You're, you're good to go like i know a lot of people do like they're like oh these b vitamins or this is specific nutrient like m- most of it is pretty shoddy and you know not great research and 
while there might be some mechanistic hypothesis why that particular nutrient is beneficial, eh, I'm not really that impressed with with anything. Um, I do think examine.com have a depression like a tab thing or whatever page. Um, so you can look at the different supplements and you'll see that most of them are just not not that effective. Um, so other than just eating a calorie appropriate diet, getting high quality food into you, managing your body composition, focusing on you know getting the micronutrients that you need, making sure that you're getting enough fish oil and maybe again, vitamin D I would single out. So that's one that we should maybe focus on a bit more. Other than that, um, there's nothing really above and beyond that you can do however you kind of need to do the basics to get the results people think that oh, i need to you know get this really like esoteric thing and that's going to be the thing that changes everything but the fact remains that most people are just not doing the basics like if you get the basics done then you see a lot of the results that you are looking to get and unfortunately people look for the esoteric rather than just the the baseline you know so don't be looking for these extra supplements don't be looking for all this x y and z oh maybe this protocol is going to help just focus on the foundational diet structure and we've talked about it a million times on the podcast so we don't need to do it here um but do either of you have anything else to add or if not gary do you want to wrap this up yeah just just finally on that note um vitamin d was one that you mentioned vitamin b12 is probably one that maybe is a little bit more important in some populations as well like vitamin d and vitamin b12 are probably the only two real nutrients that your doctor might test for and um, depending on the doctor but they might test for it to rule out organic causes of depression um when you're receiving that diagnosis so that's something to be aware of and particularly if you're on a plant-based diet um it does seem that vegetarians um, and vegans typically have higher rates of depression um, than non-plant-based dieters, but you know it's very difficult to parse out exactly why that is, whether it's gen- a genuine nutrition-related effect um, or is it something to do with, for example, maybe people with depression or with lower mood generally are more likely to seek out alternative diets, um, plant-based diets, etc. Difficult to tell. Um, or it think- could just be the fact that women tend to eat more plant-based and women are also the ones that get more depression yeah i mean it's 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 not entirely clear at this point in time i think last last year was when the i think that i don't know is it the first or the largest meta-analysis on that came out but um further study warranted it's not a reason to not be on a plant-based diet um but it's just one of those things that especially if you're in that position it might be something worth considering to just see where your vitamin B12 is at, where your um, diet is at overall, you know, are you meeting adequacy? Um, but yeah, that's, that's the diet just, side. Just on that as well, like, like we're kind of glossed over it, but you will see things like, and this is very particular to like the health and fitness world. People will go on diets and they'll start noticing depressive symptoms. And this could be related to the fact that, you know, the HPA axis is impacted by the amount of calories that you're consuming. And we talked about this a lot in relation to um, amenorrhea. Like you start seeing this, like, oh, you start getting like reductions in hormone synthesis and the beneficial hormones uh, that we're, we're looking for because you're on low calories. This obviously happens in men as well. Like you'll see people, you know, coming up to like a bodybuilding competition and they'll have really bad depressive symptoms and some of, some of this is related to like maybe the inflammatory burden of the training that they're doing the inflammatory burden of and maybe the drugs that they're taking as well and the side effects of those drugs but even in a natural population you might start seeing these 
these uh, depressive symptoms as a result of eating low calories. And that could be related to the fact that now they're starting to see low levels of hormones. For example, again, in males, testosterone seems to be protective against depression. Um, and if you have low testosterone, you seem to be more likely to get depression. And as a result of that, if you have a, a situation where you're basically inducing low testosterone, you're basically quasi castrating yourself by just not eating enough in the pursuit of getting absolutely shredded, right? You can have low levels of hormones, right? Um, and as a result of that, your depression may be worse, right? And this is the same in women. You now have a situation where you're trying to get absolutely shredded and now you have low levels of, you know, potentially the beneficial uh, estrogen here. And as a result, your depressive symptoms are worse. And then you're also compounding that by introducing this chronic stress of being in a deficit and now we've got maybe, you know, receptor changes, estrogen receptor changes, you know, there's, there's so much that goes into this. So we want to be making sure that we're not just thinking of calorie appropriateness in terms of fat loss, like that might have to be the case for some individuals. It might be, you know, excess body fat that's causing or playing a causal role in their depression. But just because I'm saying calorie appropriate, that does not mean I'm saying calorie deficit, right? For most people, calorie appropriate is going to be eating in and around maintenance. Check. Anyway, Gary, unless Nicola has anything else to say, you want to wrap us up? Yep, I'll wrap us up. All right, guys. So thank you very much for listening to this episode on depression in women. How many episodes of depression or the, the women series do we have left? Uh, I don't know, five, six. Yeah, we have a few left. So we have a good few left. So if you're enjoying this, you know, do share it. Let people know that we're talking about all um, different problems and non-problems related to women in this series and in particular obviously we've been focusing on the health and fitness side and so you know if someone is interested in improving their fitness they're improving their muscle mass they're improving their health etc they can listen to the series and go back to the start and uh, we'd appreciate that so if you're interested in more specific help we do have coaching spaces available you can find information on that in the description box below you can also get more free information from us by subscribing to our email list and again, information description box, and also by following us on Instagram at triage method. You'll also find all of our respective individual pages there and can follow on with the content we're putting out. And uh, you should have everything you need to be the healthiest, fittest, and strongest version of yourself. Fantastic. Anyway, hope you all enjoyed that guys. And we'll see you in the next one.